Today we're going to be introduced to a famous man in our scripture reading that's taken from St. Luke's Gospel in the 19th chapter, verse 1. I say he's a famous man. He's famous if you grew up in the church as a kid. You were probably taught a song about this, this little man. You see in verse 1 right there where the events of the story take place. They take place in the city of Jericho. This is one of Jesus' last stops on his journey to Jerusalem. He is uh, about 10 days, maybe 14 days from dying in the city of Jerusalem. There's so many interesting features in this short story. I'm going to try in the sermon to bring out a number of these uh, things that that caught my attention and and stick to the story mostly. One of them at the very beginning is this. do you remember what Jesus' name in Hebrew means? It's a Yehoshua, Yeshua, which is Joshua, coming to Jericho. <laughs> yeah, some of us learned a, a song about that, didn't we? At the very first time that Joshua comes to Jericho, what does he do to the city? He absolutely bulldozes the thing. He destroys it. He raises it to the ground and says, uh, that cursed be anyone who builds up this city again. Well, here we get the second act of Joshua coming to the city of Jericho. And this time, of course, he is not coming to destroy it, but to bring salvation to its most unlikely, unlikely recipient in the city. That's, there you go, there's one feature right there. Uh, another one that stands out, Zacchaeus, the, the thing that Zacchaeus wants more than anything else. He wants to see Jesus. That's why he's getting up in the tree. It's in order to see Jesus. The irony is that the disciples who have been with him throughout this whole long journey to Jerusalem have failed to see Jesus. They are still blind to the facts, no matter how many times he told them that he's going to the city of Jerusalem to suffer and to die and be, to be killed uh, the people who you would think see Jesus, are it's this guy who ends up truly seeing him. There's more of that. A little appetizer for the rest of the sermon. <laughs> Let's read verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man, there, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he... He could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of all my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back four times, pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to, to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. 
this story has an almost whimsical quality about it. Picture a short, balding Danny DeVito (laughs) dressed in a toga, an expensive flowing robe, in a culture where they didn't wear undergarments underneath their robes, climbing up into a tree. And it's not just any tree. It's a sycamore tree. Now, there are several parts of the story which have perplexed me ever since I I first learned the song in Sunday school. And one of those questions is this. What in the world is a sycamore tree doing in the deserts of Israel? Have you ever wondered that before? You know, you think of a sycamore. I don't know. My picture is upstate New York or, you know, the Great Lakes region, Michigan, Those type of... What's a sycamore doing in in Israel? Have you ever asked that before? Well, it turns out the word sycamore comes from two Greek words, sika, which means fig, and moris, which means mulberry. Literally, he climbed up a mulberry fig tree, the leaves of which are, are very similar in shape to a mulberry tree, and the fruit on it is a is very similar in shape and size to figs. Now, it's not a made-up story. The original sycamore is from the Middle East. It's a native species of of Africa, northern Africa, and the Middle East. And it has, look it up later today if you want, very long, um, flowing, low-hanging branches, very broad at the base, perfect for climbing. You could imagine any Jewish boy loving to climb a mulberry fig sycamore tree. Why does he do it? I've already referred to the fact that he wanted to see Jesus. Um, But what made him so interested in seeing Jesus? Presumably, he had just heard about Jesus. Jesus' reputation as a great teacher a miracle worker, a healer, and, and you know, that's why he, he wants, hey, a celebrity's coming to town. Let's, let's, let's catch, catch a glimpse of him and his entourage. Um, one of the things that I think we're all looking forward to the most when it comes to the resurrection is one day getting to interview all these people in the scripture who, and get to ask them questions like, you know, tell me more. What were you thinking? Peter, what were you thinking when you, uh, when you said that? Zacchaeus, what, 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 what made you attracted to Jesus? And I wonder if the answer he won't give us one day in heaven is he had heard that one of Jesus', one of Jesus very own disciples was a tax collector. Jesus was the only rabbi in all of human history that chose a tax collector to be one of his hand-picked disciples. Nobody else does that. Nobody else... In the history of Israel, would pick Matthew to be one of his his students, and yet that's the case. I wonder, I just wonder if uh, Zacchaeus isn't attracted for that very reason. Well, Luke also tells us the part that we we all know of, and that is Zacchaeus was short. And here's another question that's perplexed me ever since I I was a kid. Um, if he's short, why can't he just kind of elbow his way to the front of the crowd and stand there on the road, like in front of the crowd? Why can't, you know, I mean, he's short. Everybody can see over him. Why can't he, you know, muscle his way to the front? 
And the answer is actually given to us in verse 2. Look there with me. Luke points this out, that Zacchaeus, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. In other words, he was at the head of the Ponzi scheme that we call, or they call, the Roman taxation system. He was an architelones. If, um, I'll illustrate it this way, if Canada decided to uh, invade Idaho this afternoon, and we were subject to the Mounties, and you know they took over, they took over our uh, our state, and um, there was a Canadian tax collector who who just happened to be in Boise at the time uh, for New Year's New Year's Day, and and he he wanted to watch the dropping of the potato or whatever they do down downtown on New Year's Day. I, you know, normally oppressive government officials, just, they don't feel comfortable making their way through a, a great crowd of revelers. You know, the reason that Zacchaeus didn't push through the crowd is because he might have died trying it. He was so hated. This is the that most hated man in the city of Jericho, one of the wealthiest people in the city and, and most most likely the most uh, despised. For whatever reason, he doesn't push through the crowd, um, and he cannot see over the crowd. I think I told you in a sermon, it was probably six months ago, that archaeologists have done quite a bit of, of work with the skeletal remains of people who lived in the first century, and they have determined that the average height and weight of a first century Jewish man, does anybody remember what it, what it is? It was, it was five feet, one inch tall. The average Jewish man was 5'1", 110 pounds. And Zacchaeus couldn't even see over him. You get that? He's really short. Like, uncomfortably short. Now, I I want you to appreciate the the significance of what happens next. Um, You know, in our culture, for us, Freedom and individual rights and autonomy, those are the things which we prize and we hold as, you know, the top of our hierarchical pyramid. And we hold those things as self-evident. But in traditional cultures, those things didn't matter much at all. What mattered above all else was maintaining your dignity and honor and avoiding shame. Maintain your status as a dignified person. You know, that was, was ultimate. Don't you think it crossed this, this short man's mind <laughs> That getting up in a tree would, um, would, would be the height of indignity? Don't you think it crossed his mind that if I get up in a tree, that only accentuates the fact that I'm a midget? The whole thing, the whole activity of climbing a tree basically draws attention to the worst possible parts of himself. You know, the fact that I'm a rich man, a powerful man who is despised by everybody, and I'm too short to see over the rest of the crowd is just going to invite more ridicule and scorn. Don't you think that he didn't know that? Of course he did. But you say, well, Zacchaeus was eager to see Jesus. Zacchaeus really wanted to see Jesus. Yes, that is, that is true. And you and I actually don't appreciate how much that is true. To say that this man was eager to see Jesus, the word eager doesn't do justice to the situation. Better, this is something that is close to desperation. 
the only reason a short man, a very short man, is going to openly open himself up to the kind of ridicule and scorn uh, that climbing a tree would, would bring to him is because he is a desperately, spiritually needy man. Like there's something so, um, his soul is so hungry for God that he's willing to basically endure the worst of people's opinions about him. Does that make sense? You know, when you and I, we, we see Zacchaeus up in the tree, we think cute Sunday school flannel board. But in reality, he is a pathetic creature. He's a desperately pathetic creature. I'll use this example. It, uh, we've all witnessed a teenage girl who has a, a crush on the, uh, the quarterback on the football team. You know, she's just desperately in love with the, the quarterback, and uh, he won't give her the time of day. He doesn't even know that she exists, but she, she just goes out of her, she does everything possible to like throw herself at his feet. And uh, there's no level of indignity that she will not stoop to to try to win the affection and attention and love of that quarterback. We look at that little girl and we say, boy, boy, the, she's embarrassing to us. And brothers and sisters, this is, we should be embarrassed by how badly this man needs God. I don't know if you ever thought of the passage in that way, but we should be embarrassed for him. What a pitiful creature. What a pitiful creature to need God that much. Okay, the next thing that happens, let's look at verse 5. Jerem Bars is one of my favorite professors. He is the director of the Francis Schaeffer Institute at Covenant Theological Seminaries. He's just such a, um, a winsome and gracious man. Every time I've listened to him lecture, just grace, uh, it just eat, uh, oozes out of his pores. Well, he was at a church in Charlottesville, North Carolina, or Charlottesville, Virginia, and he was giving a talk on, I think it was an evangelism conference, or maybe it was a missions conference. And he pointed out several things about this story that I had never thought before. He said, the first off is, I mean, nobody invites themselves over to somebody else's house for lunch. I mean, think about if after I pronounce the benediction today on Reformation Sunday, you strike up a conversation with that couple in front of you who you never met before, and they say, hey, I got a great idea. We're going to come over to your house today, and you're going to fix us. Nobody does that. That's, that's entirely rude. It was rude in the first century, too. Why does Jesus do that to Zacchaeus? The answer, Zacchaeus could never have invited Jesus to his house. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Zacchaeus couldn't invite any rabbi or any Jewish leader or anybody to his house because nobody would be caught dead in his house. I mean, his house is the house of a tax collector. It's unclean. There's no way that anybody would come over to Zacchaeus' house. And this, I think, is one of the most beautiful subtleties of the entire passage. When Jesus Christ says, I'm going to come over to your house and you're going to cook me lunch. When he does that, there is nothing he could have done which would have bestowed upon Zacchaeus more honor and dignity to him as a human being than to say, I'm coming to your house for lunch. There's nothing he could have done that would, would have said, you are a human being created in the image of God and you are worthy of dignity and honor than to, than to invite himself over to his house for lunch. And what a model 
that is for us, of how we ought to treat, I mean, everybody in this world, but especially people who are not yet followers of Christ. I mean, what a model how we ought to treat non-Christians and, and, uh, you know, people who haven't, every person we, we meet, we need to treat with reverence and respect and a sacred concern for their being made in God's image. Jesus teaches us that in the way he deals with this man. And why doesn't he treat Zacchaeus like a dirty, rotten sinner? Why doesn't he who is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, from before whom angels can't you know, look but have to cover their eyes, how is it that he can treat sinful people whose lives are so wretched in disobedience and so lacking in faith? How can he treat us with such respect and honor and dignity and we not go and do likewise? with our, our co-workers and our colleagues. Heaven forbid, brothers and sisters. Bestow upon them dignity and honor. Look with me in verse 8. In response to uh, Jesus inviting himself over to this man's house for lunch, Zacchaeus makes two remarkable promises. The first promise, he promises to give away Did you see it there? 50% of his income to the poor. You can go through all of the Torah, read read cover to cover the Torah, and you will not find anywhere in the Bible where there is a rule which says you've got to give away half of your money for for mercy ministry. It's, It's not there. How did he come up with it? He came up with it just because he was so overwhelmingly thankful for for what Christ had done. You know, that, he's not trying to follow a, a rule and, you know, where's the 10% tithing rule? That I mean, the man just says, I will do far more. I'll do far more than the rules ever tell me to do. And then secondly, the second remarkable promise he makes in verse 8, according to Torah in Leviticus chapter 5 and Numbers chapter 5, it says that if you have unintentionally taken something which belonged to your neighbor... Maybe you accidentally charged them too much in the marketplace. Or maybe you borrowed, I don't know, you borrowed their axe and you lost it. Torah required that you would pay whatever it was back, the sum back, at 120%, the full price plus 20% restitution. Notice again, Zacchaeus is not following the rules. The guy says, 120%. How about 400%? If there's anybody that I have taken anything from, I will, I'll pay it back four times over. Again, it's, it's almost like he's asking the question, what creative way can I express the joy of my salvation? What, what creative way can I express it with my money? And notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, no, oh, no, no, no. Don't worry about that. All of that is water under the bridge. You know, the past is the past. Every, all of it's under grace. Don't worry about, no, no, no. There's a clear sense that Jesus agrees. Absolutely. You pay, you pay restitution for, what, for, for any harm that you have caused. You know, I've met many Christians who have used glib phrases such as, let's move on, or that's water under the bridge, or only God can judge me as, as ways, I've done it too, as ways to minimize the sin and the harm we have done to other people. When we are convicted of doing something wrong, 
No, Jesus says, go back to the person, apologize, and pay restitution. Make amends. Make extravagant amends. Make extravagant amends for what, for what you uh, have, have done wrong. Which leads me to my final two points. Number one, um, and it's this, it's taken from church history. What stands out when you study church history is the astonishing variety of ways Jesus Christ calls people to himself. Now, I think that Zacchaeus has got to be the, the first and maybe the only person who has ever been called out of a tree to come to Jesus Christ. But there have been a lot of crazy ways that people have come to faith in him. So Paul, you know, Jesus called Paul on the road to Damascus as he was headed up to the city to persecute uh, and, uh, and lynch Christians there. How did Jesus call Augustine? How did he call Augustine? He called Augustine when he was in the garden villa in Milan, sitting on a bench, listening to neighbor kids chant out some kind of game they were playing. Tole lege, tole lege, take up and read. And that's what he did. He, he took up the scriptures, believing that to be a word from Jesus. He, he took up the scriptures. And so he read. That's Reformation Day. How, did, how was Martin Luther called by Jesus Christ? He was called by Christ when he was in the monastery, when he was studying and translating Romans chapter 1, verse 17, uh, about uh, you know, righteousness by faith and not sola fide and, and not by his good monkish works. John Newton, he was called when he was the captain of a slave ship out, out at sea during an enormous storm as he was traveling back to the port city of Liverpool. He thought he and all of his crew would, be, would die and he'd sink, and no, he didn't. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, how, did, how was Spurgeon called? He's a 16-year-old guy walking through the streets of London on a snowy day, on a Sunday, when he decides to Ah, there's a church here. I guess I'll go in. Walks into a a primitive Methodist church. And through the entire sermon, he felt like the preacher was just talking to him the whole way through. Uh, Finally, how did God call C.S. Lewis? Remember? He was riding in his brother's uh, motorcycle. Actually, in the sidecar to his brother's motorcycle as they were headed through the streets of Oxford on their way to the zoo. How did God call Paul and Luther and Newton and Spurgeon and Lewis. What what were they doing when they heard the voice of Jesus say, come and get out of the tree? Brothers and sisters, where did he call you from? Where did he call you from? And when did he call you? I mean, for some of us, we don't have this dramatic, great conversion story. uh, but, But our story is still good enough to be told. And my challenge to you is my first point is, um, when was the last time you told somebody your story of, of when you heard the voice of Jesus call? And would you be willing to do that this week? Would you be willing to talk to a colleague or, uh, or a, a neighbor, a friend, a, a family member? And, I mean, are you willing to bear the, the stigma of being the person who talks about your faith at work? <laughs> You know, the indignity of it all. Would you be willing to tell, tell somebody your story when you heard the voice of Jesus call? That's number one. Number two. <laughs> I can only imagine how the people of Jericho would feel if they knew that 2,000 years later, 
we are talking this morning about the most hated man in their city. I mean, isn't that bizarre? 2,000 years later, and the only person we talk about from the city of Jericho is the most hated, most uh, unscrupulous, the most notorious sinner. The fact that Jesus, is, he's in a crowd of people, a crowd of perfectly respectable people. We talked about the danger of being a respectable person last week. Out of all of this crowd of respectable people, Jesus singles out the one notorious sinner to do something for him. And this was, um, it's, it's, it's astounding. It's, it's this pattern we find in the Bible quite frequently that the, the more outcast a person is, the more sinful a person somebody is, the more despised somebody is, the more likely Jesus Christ is actually to come along and say, will you do something for me? The more they're hated, the more he asks them to come. Uh, think of the woman uh, at the well in Samaria. He doesn't say, I'll get, give you a drink or let me grab you some food. He says, will you give me a drink? He, he asks the scandalized person to serve him. Think of uh, the woman who washes his feet with her hair and her tears. Walked into the home of the Pharisee and he didn't take care of him like custom required. And so she, he let her do that for him. And then we see this with Zacchaeus. Um, the, the worse a person is, the more it seems like Jesus wants, wants to get to know them. That's verse 10, my friends. Look at it. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. If you and I were backpacking in the Frank Church wilderness of no return. Uh, and we got lost, and we lost our cell phone signal, and we lost, oh, our flashlights went out, and all of our our food was eaten by a bear. We were lost, and we were going to be on a backpacking trip there for seven days. Nobody was expecting to hear from us for another seven to ten days. Nobody knows that we're lost. Nobody's out there looking for us. I suspect that would be one of the, the most frightening experiences uh, of being a human being. It's, it's lo- being lost and knowing that nobody is out there looking for you. But friends, you cannot make that accusation of God. Jesus Christ is seeking you. He, he is a one-man search and rescue team. <laughs> he, he is seeking you. And he may be seeking you today. The most remarkable thing is you can walk through that door a sinner and you can leave here a son and daughter of Abraham. Because he is seeking you. It's not because you're seeking God. It's because he's seeking you. It's not because you've got to polish yourself up and make yourself acceptable to God. It's because he wants to give you the gift of salvation as a free act of his grace. So what I'd like to do in conclusion with the sermon is to lead, to lead us in a prayer of faith. For, for maybe I'm talking to you right now. You are ready to come into the kingdom of heaven. You're ready to uh, join this kingdom And if that's the case, uh, I'd invite you to bow your head. I want all of us to bow our heads and pray, but but especially those of you who are ready to take the step of faith, bow your head and and pray with me. Uh, Almighty God and dear Father, thank you for sending Jesus to seek and save the lost. I admit that I, I am one of the lost. I know that I am a sinner, 
And I ask you, uh, the holy God of heaven and earth, to have mercy upon me. I want to, I want now to live with Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. And I want to live in, in service to him as my King. In, in grateful response to your salvation, uh, I offer my whole life, all of my life, um, back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.